Hello and welcome to the Full Fact Podcast, where we tackle dishonesty, untruths and misrepresentation in politics and the media. I'm Alexis Conran and I'll be talking about the biggest stories of the week with independent and impartial fact checkers from the Full Fact team. Now, this last week, there's only been one story in town, really, and surprisingly enough, it's not England progressing to the quarterfinals of the Euros. I'm not going to read this bit of script, which the producers put in, mocking, mocking Greece for not qualifying. I am going to repeat and say Greece didn't really try to qualify because Greece won it in, back in 2004. So we thought as a nation, we'll let other nations have a go. We'll step out. Now, uh, of course, the biggest story of the week has been the health secretary, Matt Hancock. Now, in case you missed it, footage from uh, as early as May was released showing Mr. Hancock kissing one of his aides. This was back when affairs were illegal, of course. Since then, his position has been filled by Sajid Javid. But there are still a number of questions to be answered. And to try and do that, I'm joined by Full Fact CEO, Will Moy. Uh, Will, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Alexis. Uh, look, let's get the footy chat out of the way. We're not going to see full fact go out in force correcting people who are saying this was the best game of football they've ever seen by saying, well, actually, factually, it really wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure it's the best game of football I've seen in the last two weeks, but I'm willing to accept that different people's opinions may differ. <laughs> Right. Well, look, let's focus on what we're really going to be talking about today, which was, well, since we had a week off last week, of course, and Matt Hancock's resignation happened over the weekend. But even over the resignation itself, there are still questions that need to be answered. So did he resign or was he sacked by the prime minister? Because the prime minister came out later after the resignation and gave us a different story. Yes, he did. Um, and it is an, an interesting, very carefully designed turn of phrase, isn't it? So what happened is that we all know the, the offence, as it were, and it appeared on the front pages of the newspapers. Thank goodness this is a podcast, so there's no stills or videos to share. On Friday, the 25th of June, a number 10 spokesperson says the Prime Minister, quote, has full confidence in Mr. Hancock, usually code for I'm not going to sack them, and, quote, has accepted the health secretary's apology and considers the matter closed. On Saturday the 26th of June, Matt Hancock sends his resignation letter to the Prime Minister saying he does not want his private life to distract attention from dealing with the pandemic and we have a new Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. On Monday, the Prime Minister says... I I saw the uh, story on Friday, we had a a new uh, Secretary of State for Health in on Saturday. He was directly asked on Wednesday at Prime Minister's questions whether he asked Matt Hancock to resign, but he dodged the question. Now, the the interesting thing, we talk a lot about correlation and causation in fact-checking, because two things happen at the same time, does one thing happen because of the other? Because um, ice cream sales go up, do shark attacks go up, or is it because... um, Actually, the sun shines out, there's more people in the sea and all the rest of it. Now, these two things clearly happened at the same time. Boris Johnson saw the story on Friday. And yes, it is true. We had a new Secretary of State in by Saturday. But having publicly come out in support of the Secretary of State on Friday does not sound like asking them to resign. There's no evidence that he did ask them to resign, nor does he actually say himself that he asked uh, Matt Hancock to resign. So... As far as any public evidence suggests, Matt Hancock chose to resign. 
And I think at the end, uh, it was clear that Matt Hancock himself thought that it was going to be very difficult for him to continue in his role as uh, Health and Social Care Secretary of State when, for example, new measures will have to be announced, he would have to announce them. And as someone who uh, perhaps didn't, uh, through his own admission, didn't follow the guidance, that would put him in a very difficult position. But let's look at some other aspects of this incident, Will. So having an affair with an aide, does that break the ministerial code? Well, firstly, aide is a useful newspaper shorthand, but let's remember she held an important public office in her own right as non-executive director of the Department of Health and Social Care, paid £15,000 a year for 15 to 20 days work a year, one of a small group of senior advisors to a government department. She had her own responsibilities in public life. The seven principles of public life include the principle of integrity, which says they must declare and resolve any interests and relationships. That's incorporated into the ministerial code. Now, he and she are long-term friends, and they went to university together. Um, So there's clearly a long-standing relationship, which has turned into a now very well-publicized relationship. So at some point, it does seem that there should at least be a question to be asked about whether that principle of integrity was followed or not. The problem is the person who's meant to ask that job is the prime minister's advisor on ministerial interests who doesn't have the power to start an inquiry on his own authority. He can only ask the prime minister if he can start an inquiry. That's contrary to recommendations of a committee for standards in public life that says there should be an independent instigation of an inquiry when there needs to be, uh, but that power does not currently exist. So there is a real question as to whether the rules of ministerial life were followed, but there is no mechanism for answering them. And I don't think that's good enough. Part of the revelations, and I know that quite a few newspapers covered this on Sunday and beyond, and we're getting even more revelations today uh, when we're recording this, is this issue of ministers using personal emails and the concern that business, ministerial business is conducted on personal emails or on messaging services. Can we have a look at why we should be concerned? Fundamentally, because they work for you. And in order for us to know whether they are working for us, we need the ability to ask questions about what they've done. The rules are clear. The rules do require government business to be properly recorded. Um, And while, of course, you might conduct government business in an informal conversation, in a pub over dinner or nowadays over WhatsApp or Signal or whatever it might be. It's a responsibility of people in public life to make sure that they are properly recorded and the reasons for decisions are known and that they can be followed up appropriately and so on. And you can't blame anyone for being suspicious of attempts to bypass the normal channels of communication to talk to people who have been given great powers by the public. It may or may not be that all of those suspicions are well-founded, but there are reasons we have transparency rules. And in a country with such low trust in the government, such low trust in politicians, with such great powers being taken by those politicians to control our lives over the last year and a half, it's not a lot to ask that we can trace back the sources of their decisions where our money is being spent. And that is what those transparency rules are meant to enforce. Is there a process, Will, um, after this, where you can ask a minister to hand over personal email accounts? I I can imagine that legally that's going to be quite tricky. Actually, personal email accounts, when used for government business, are covered by the Freedom of Information Act. Um, Anyone has the power to access information held by public authorities. 
The problem is if they're not carefully maintained, it's harder to search them, it's harder for the information management system to kick in and so on. But legally, as has been found that personal emails or even text messages can be accessible to freedom of information requests if they're government business. What's going to happen next is up to the prime minister. Ultimately, he's the one who sets the rules for the government. He's the one who enforces the rules for the government. He's the one who can call an inquiry. Parliament, in its role scrutinizing government, can hold an inquiry into this. Uh, perhaps they will. But it is ultimately the prime minister who has the power to do something about it. Okay. I'm sure we're going to be uh, speaking about this uh, further down the line, Will. I'm pretty sure about that. Uh, look, let's move on. Um Another big story this week has been that uh, Chris Whitty harassment video, which made its way around social media. It's big in the news today with um, the two participants in the video coming forward to explain themselves. One also uh, making it clear that uh, they have been let go from their employment we also heard earlier this week that Imperial staff were sent abuse and threats after a fake memo was spread around social media. Should we start getting a little bit concerned now because more and more people seem to be falling down the rabbit hole of all these conspiracy theories? But also we are seeing a reaction. We've seen uh, BBC journalists get hounded again during an anti-lockdown protest. We saw what happened with Chris Whitty. Should we be concerned that people are getting more and more radicalised by all these conspiracy theories? I think the first thing is we should not lump everybody into one group. And there are very good reasons to question government policy, to question the extent and timing of lockdowns in different directions. There's a real legitimate policy debate to be had around lots of the government's choices. And it's important that that debate goes forward. But there is also very clearly a group of people who are joining together well-established conspiracy theories have spread sometimes for years online, conspiracy theories about how the law works, conspiracy theories about how medicines do or don't work, conspiracy theories about Jewish people, and so on. And there is a very clear group of very angry people where the issues and the choices that are in front of us right now aren't the centre of what people are concerned about and that play into a whole bunch of conspiracist-type thinking that we've seen in this country and that we've seen around the world. And I look back to the murder of Joe Cox and the fact that it really only takes one very angry individual to step out and do something extreme uh, for this to break into a whole new level of seriousness. And as you say, we've already seen the harassment of journalists. We've already seen the harassment of doctors and nurses. We've seen angry groups of people going into hospitals, uh, making false claims about the medicines and the treatments and so on. And I think we are right to be afraid of the growing level of anger and concerned about how we de-escalate that anger. And I think it's a really important question about recognizing the real concerns and valid concerns and actually having open and honest conversations about those, including, and the inquiry will surely show that mistakes were made in the handling of the pandemic, but also recognizing that some of this anger is being deliberately stoked, that it's not just based on the decisions made on the pandemic. It's based on lies being told to people and longstanding conspiracy theories and manipulation. And I think it is a really important question about how do we step back from that and who is taking the lead on that work. And what do you think is 
the best way to approach this. In our last series in the podcast, we spoke to a psychologist who specialises in conspiracy theories. And part of her suggestion was that actually some people who are deep down the rabbit hole of the conspiracy theory, all these conspiracy theories tie into a worldview of how the world works, how it's been put together. You know, if those conspiracy theories are based on not trusting anyone in authority, there's not really much you can do. If you look at the behaviour of people in politics and the media, and you ask yourself, would I reasonably generally trust them to tell the truth? I think it's reasonable to answer no. I think that's a completely rational reaction to what we see, because you don't have to be lied to all the time to distrust someone. You only have to be lied to a bit about things that matter to distrust someone. So when actually a government minister is breaking his own guidance that has had massive effects on people's lives, it's not surprising that people aren't that keen to trust the government. When the government sets up rules about how it's meant to communicate and how it's meant to be transparent and then doesn't follow them, it's not surprising that people not choose not to trust the government. So I think if you're serious about trying to be in a country where people in positions of power are trusted, then you have to be serious about being in a country where people in positions of power are accountable as well. And if people feel that they're not accountable, then it's not surprising, I think, that people get increasingly frustrated and get increasingly angry about that. And part of Full Fact's role is to push back when there's a lack of accountability, but to do it in a healthier way than just pure anger. Okay. Uh, Again, I think this is another subject that we'll be coming back to in future episodes. Uh, let's uh, let's finish off with uh, some more stories from the week. Uh, a few people have been complaining about fans at Wimbledon not wearing masks and also people at the Euros not following guidelines. What are the procedures and extra measures that have been put around the tournaments? Because, of course, you can understand people. People are saying, well, I've got to self-isolate the kids. And, you know, we've got an extraordinary amount of children not being at school. We've got people being told they can't travel. And yet they're watching, you know, Wembley was half full, looked pretty full. They're watching Wimbledon being quite full. And they're thinking, well, hang on a minute. What's going on here? Absolutely. And it's got that sort of nagging sense of, is there another rule for those people over there that's different from the rules for us? And it's certainly just very surprising seeing large crowds in sports stadiums on TV at the moment. And um, I've been told that in other countries, there have been headlines simply about the fact that the UK is letting crowds gather that way. So it's worth knowing what the rules are. In both Wimbledon and Euros, reduced capacity in the venues, You have to have proof of double vaccination or a negative COVID test to get in at all. You have to wear your masks while moving around, but you don't have to wear a mask while you're sitting watching the match. So that's why you see these quite large crowds of people not wearing masks. Are you allowed to hug your friend next to you if England score a goal? (laughs) Such a great question. We've managed to make this incredibly complicated. It is up to your personal judgment whether you can hug your friend if England score a goal. The guidance says the public can make informed personal decisions on close contact, such as hugging with their friends and family. And of course, informed personal decisions are exactly what I make when England scores. (laughs) And if you live in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, are you allowed to hug your friend if Ukraine score? 
<laughs> um, slightly different picture here. So Scotland, in public, you should socially distance. So the answer is no. But in private homes, you may hug your friends and family. So the answer is yes. Um, in Wales, people should maintain social distancing, including outdoors. So in Wales, I'm sorry, no hugging. Um, and in Northern Ireland, hugging is not permitted in a hospitality setting. So no hugs in pubs, but careful and cautious hugs are allowed at home, so long as you consider the individual circumstances and scenarios. Well, Will, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Will Moy, uh, CEO of Full Fact, thanks for giving me your time. Thank you. Now, if you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and tell your friends to help stop the spread of bad information. Full Fact is independent and impartial, and you can read more about our commitment to neutrality at fullfact.org forward slash about. We'll be back at the same time next Friday morning.